This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, Victoria Schroff. She's going to be talking to us about animals and the law. Victoria, I'm going to let you tell us all about yourself. Please welcome Victoria. So I'm really happy to be here to talk to you guys because I know that um, you have ethics as one of the forefronts of what you do as humanists. And um, the thing about animals is they need people like you. So it's, uh, it's going to be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speed through um, a little bit about the history, the status of non-human animals in the law, and give you some examples. So that's how we're going to run this today. I'm going to ask if you could hold your questions to the end, unless you have a burning thing you need to say, in which case, please feel free to, to say so. Okay, so um, my, my slides today are a little busy because... Um, I basically use my slides as my talking points as well. So you don't need to look at the screen the whole time. It's sort of part of my talking point. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an introduction about my practice in animal law. I've been doing it for 18 years. And I'm going to give you a brief history of animal law with some examples from the 1300s. And we're going to talk about cruelty, pet custody, dangerous dogs, international law, and some questions. So. Um, what is animal law in the first place? I get asked this every time I speak, every time I go on CBC, I talk to a lot of media and have done so over the years, and people are just saying, what even does it cover? So it covers everything from dog attacks, pet custody struggles, horse-drawn carriage bans, animal cruelty, tail docking, dolphins caught in fishing nets, sled dogs, bestiality, wildlife, ele elephants as persons, chimpanzees as persons, it's just everything. I, my simple definition is it's any place where an animal intersects with the law. And so there are many, many places from municipal laws to federal laws. Um, and it's not new. What is new is calling it animal law. Just like environmental law didn't really have its own um, umbrella term. It was just a bunch of cases about trees and forests and rivers. And then somebody said, hey, let's call this environmental law. So this is similar to what's happened with animal law, is that we just gave it this name in 1977. That's when the first um, animal law course was offered. So um, animal law can cover tort, property, contract, criminal, municipal, administrative, commercial, wills, family law, and a lot more. So as I said, I've been practicing for about close to 20 years, and I'm one of the longest serving animal law practitioners in the country as a result. And I really feel very privileged to practice in this area because it is um, a huge interest for me. I've always had animals in my life. I was born in Africa, not that far from the Serengeti. And um, so I have um, lectured about animal law as far away as India and as close as Galliano Island. So it's something that I really enjoy doing. I also teach animal law at UBC Law School. Um, so this is something that I was sort of bound to do sooner or later because there are tons of lawyers in my family, including my dad. 
and I had the um, ability to practice animal law because it's not super lucrative. It's not one of those big money areas like, if you want big money, go into tax law. If you want to have something that makes a difference in the world as part of your practice, go into animal law. So I started a program um, as well as part of my animal law outreach, and this is really important to me, one of my pet projects, um, and it's called Pause of Empathy. And what I do with that program is I teach empathy and kindness through the platform of animals and social literacy in elementary schools. So I started doing this uh, program this year. It's been in my brain for about more than five years, how I could do this, because it's based on something I heard the Dalai Lama say. And um, so this is something that's up and running and um, a great way to basically bring children into the, to the understanding. I was going to say the movement of animal law because a lot of people feel it's kind of a calling. Um, and it is that, but it's also, it's also basic law. So types of animal law cases. Um, I've had a whole whack of interesting cases from expensive horse semen that went missing in transit and that was that was FedEx's fault um, and um, a vet malpractice involving uh, a, what's called a breeding bitch I mean it's and that's a term of art it's not an insult it was truly a, a, a bitch that was going to be producing animals and she wasn't able to because um, the vet did something to her um, I've had defamation in the horse world pet custody cases, municipal and provincial dog bite cases, animal cruelty involving hoarding, wildlife issues, pet insurance claims, groomer cases, dangerous dog cases, therapy dog cases, strata cases, and much more. So I've had clients from as far away as Newfoundland because they don't have, or I mean they didn't the last time I checked, they didn't have any animal law lawyers there. So then I would get phone calls. Um, I get phone calls from different provinces. Um, and the other thing is, is that very few animal law cases actually get reported. So there's not a big body of case law to draw on. So a new practitioner starting out might say, well, I'm really interested to see this in that case. Well, it probably won't be written down and reported and accessible. So animals in history. Um, humans and non-human animals' interests have been intertwined for hundreds of years, but the whole main takeaway from today, if you remember one thing, is that animals are still property under the law. As offensive as that might be to people who feel that animals are part of their family, animals are still property, by and large, in almost every statute and every interpretation of the laws. So whether we're thinking about the two main areas, animal welfare or animal rights, notions of animals as, pro as property is absolutely key to an understanding. So um, this this comes back to history. It was decided that non-human animals were property, and this is how we decided things, I mean, based on the Judeo-Christian model. And we said animals are not equal to humans, nor is there equality between species. So what we have is we see, can you guys see that little cartoon? The, 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 the cat and dog, the companion animals are saying, and if we're mistreated, the humans go to prison. Well, actually, not that often anyway. And then, and then the other animals, the farmed animals say, I'm so jealous. Because there's this huge dichotomy with the animals that come into our living space versus the ones that are out there. And then we can find in a meat tray in Safeway later on. So there's this moral confusion um, with animal law and the way we treat animals in society. 
So it comes from a classification, um, a big broad classification, persons and things. So we have animals, non-human animals, and, and things. And things are property. So from this outmoded idea, laws relating to animals flowed and continue to flow. So systemic equality is built into the law. And here's the, you know, the, the Orwellian quote about all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And that was a lot like the last slide, right? You know, I mean, your cat or dog is a lot more valuable than that rat in the lab. And the human animal hierarchy becomes entrenched. And this is going back a long time. Um, so we have something which I think is one of the leading cases, and I was speaking to Eugenie here um, earlier, she, who's doing her PhD in law, and this is the case that I suggest everybody look at if they're interested in animal law, because it's a 2011 case written by the Chief Justice of Alberta. And so it's a court of appeal case, meaning three judges, and two made one pronouncement, and she made a dissent saying other things. And she said this quote, and I think this is something I'd like you to think about. The past 250 years have seen a significant evolution in the law relating to animals, though admittedly not as far as many might consider warranted. We have moved from a highly exploitive era in which humans had the right to do with animals as they saw fit to the present where some protection is accorded under laws based on an animal welfare model. So please just sort of think about this as we go through today. So, um, so what we're looking at is in these 12 to 15,000 years of domestication, we have a, established a variety of contradictory relationships with animals, both wild and captive, regarding them interchangeably as companions, family members, entertainers, servants, vermin tools, models, specimens, units of production. That's what Leslie Biscold said, and she's one of the first animal law lawyers in Canada, and she literally wrote a book on Canadian animal law, and we use her textbook at UBC Law School. So you can see like animals have been disenfranchised as an another or an other, and that's how we can use them as entertainers, and, and we can have them in circuses. We can have whales in the aquarium still. So it's a history largely based on exploitation. And so this is part of the never-ending conflict of positions between animals and humans. We have a history riddled with exploitation. We have in the West biblical interpretations. Uh, it's called the dominion theory, you know, where God gave dominion over all things and all people. And so, you know, you better listen to this. This is what happens. And so then we have, on the other side, we have the emergence of science. And I say that in air quotes as well because um, science also serves itself. It, it aims to be, it thinks it's objective, but science aims to serve itself. Um, and then we keep on going back to animals or property, even in science. And here we say, well, humans owed no moral or much of a legal duty to animals just because they were property. So we're going to go through a little history. In the 1300s, animals were actually defendants in court cases. So we had, this was, you know, in after the age of reason. And so in the 1300s, they were put on trial in Western Europe. It, so pigs were brought up for manslaughter. Caterpillars and rats were brought in for crop devastation. And they were all charged with crimes. The trials were mostly ecclesiastical, but hundreds of these trials are documented in France, Spain, Germany, and Italy. And offenses range from the pigs killing children decimation of crops by rats and insects. And the first recorded trial was A24 AC, A, um, ACE involving moles. And they decimated some crops in Italy. And the punishment, they were excommunicated from the Catholic <laughs> Church. 
they could have been killed or pardoned. And I just thought, well, did the animals care? Like, how did they know they were excommunicated? But they were. They were excommunicated. So um, one of the most famous lawyers of the day was Bartholomew Chazenet of France. And this well-respected lawyer took on rats as clients. And his rat clients were in Autun for, read, for eating the barley crops. And of course, everybody knew that rats are things, and rats but, you know, they were things with bad characters. So Chazenet had to get creative to defend him. So he, the court records show that, you know what, the rats failed to attend at their first appearance. They're like, I'm not going. And then the other guy asked the other guy, are you going? No, I'm not going. They all decide, we're not showing up in court. And Mr. Chazenet said, you know what, the rats were too dispersed, too far and wide in the fields, and the single summons that was issued by the court was insufficient to secure their attendance. So the court says, so what? I will, I will issue a second citation. And, 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 they, and they published it in the parish, far and wide, put it up on the side of barns and everything. And the rats, surprisingly, still didn't attend. And, and Chazenet said it was because it was dangerous. The rats had to cross these fields, and there were cats in the way. It just wasn't going to happen. And so he said, because they could not safely attend, they should be acquitted. The court bought it, and all the rats were acquitted. In 1659, an Italian court said caterpillars had a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hmm, sound familiar? In 1750 in Vanvray, a man was convicted of buggery and put to death while the she-ass was acquitted on the grounds that she was a victim of violence and did not consent. Some parish members signed a certificate saying that her character was virtuous. And I say relate this to the power imbalance in sex assault cases that we have today. You know, the, the woman is put on trial a second time. First, she undergoes the assault. Then she has to come and give evidence. So the learning point here for me is that the animal trials show how the practice of law is formed through complex interactions and rationalizations, taking us um, taking on board customs and doctrine to try and make sense of the world around us. Um, societal harmony. It's important because when an animal injured a person, that animal needed to be put to death in cases to visibly restore the hierarchy. An eye for an eye, extracting, extracting revenge, um, some societal order. There's a parallel in modern times with dangerous dogs being put down after an attack. We need to see that something happens to that dog. And it's not ancient history. The last known trial um, in, in Switzerland was as late as 1906. And there's a book by Edward Paysong called The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. But essentially, we see how these animal trials demonstrated the ongoing struggle of rationalizing the differences society sought with animals with the similarities it was unable to deny. That's a Biscold quote as well. So did animals have some sort of free will to act, to be on the stand, to make legal decisions of some sort in the 1300s? Today, animals still do not have standing or locus standi. That is the capacity of a party to bring suit in court. But there are some signs of change afoot in the US and India, and we'll be getting to that. 1588 to 1800, how are animals seen by Western European philosophers, and how does this inform notions of how animals evolved as property? So, um, we'll, you know, Hobbes said, you know, basically life is, life is awful, nasty, brutish, and short. Animals are not rational, and they are not part of the social contract. Descartes, only humans can think or reason. 
animals are mechanical, physical bodies with no capacity to think or reason or feel pain. And then I, I always put this in as a side note because people who are pro Descartes should think again. He did experiments on animals without anesthesia when he could easily have done that. But no, they were things, so that's how he, he did it. Bentham. So Bentham, he's the founder of utilitarianism. He's kind of progressive. Um, and he says animals need to be considered because they have the capacity to suffer. The question is not can they reason nor can they talk, but can they suffer? We've, we've all seen that quote. Um, animal suffering is only justified if it is necessary to fulfill an important benefit for mankind. So uh, Bentham believed in abolishing slavery and some rights for women. But the key point in there is necessary. Um, 1800s to today, in England where our laws are formed and derived, um, the first legislation was Martin's Act for the protection of animals, mainly for horses and cattle. So, you know, big valuable animals would have laws passed for them. That was in 1822. And then in 1824, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which later became the Royal SPCA in 1840, was established. The Society focused on enforcement of the law with prosecutions where appropriate. So um, in 1835, was amended to protect companion animals, such as dogs and cats, against cruelty. Unnecessary suffering was codified, putting into law the emergent duty that animals had some status and that they sort of mattered. So humans needed to help animals and each other. So from 1894 up until 1911 in Canada, some branches of the SPCA were providing marriage counseling. And a Winnipeg's Humane Society was formed for the PCA to women, children, and animals. And animal welfare as a status was getting entrenched. And then we had Darwin in 1809. And this was a big change, evolutionary science. And it, you know, it turned out we weren't that different from the animals. And then in 1851, we have Salt. And um, he sort of started going a little bit beyond animal welfare. And he questioned the use of animals as subordinate to humans. And here's um, apparently Salt was said to have influenced world leaders in civil rights like the Mahatma Gandhi. And our own judge, Kastner, in Maple Lodge Farms said um, he attributed the quote of Gandhi, um, the important case that, that was the case about the um, pre-kill treatment of chickens en route to slaughter. And that's the quote where he used, the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. That's a Gandhi quote. Then we move on up to the 70s. In 1974, Peter Singer, who is still, by the way, very active in animal law. He's an ethicist, and um, he does a lot of different stuff. But I think right now he's at Princeton. And he looked back on Bentham's ideas, and he stretched them to their end point. And he wrote this huge game-changing book called Animal Liberation. And it inspired people like Stephen Wise of the Non-Human Rights Project to go forward. And we started to say to ourselves, wait a minute, animals are sentient. And we can see examples of where animals with mental capacities that ex can exceed newborn babies or brain-damaged adults. Then we have the abolitionists. And they're on the very far end of the spectrum. Gary Francione is one of the leads in that area. And he says there's no logical basis for denying animal rights just as we do for people. And he also says we really probably should give up keeping pets. That's a subordinate thing. And um, we need to just get rid of this idea that they're property. And veganism is a moral imperative. Then we have a paradigm shift from welfare 
to rights-based. And I'm wondering if it's time. Some, in some ways it is, and some ways it isn't. Because power needs to shift for there to be change. Those in power like it the way it is. Well, why change things around, right? I mean, women were not legal persons until the 20th century. Animals, Jewish people, slaves, people of color, women different or disabled or disenfranchised persons have all suffered at one time or still suffering now from not having their fundamental rights met. I mean, so we talk about women had the right to vote 100 years ago. That was only for white women. You know, that wasn't all women. Um, and it wasn't Aboriginal or Indigenous people. So society shows that it can change um, and we can confer benefits where the will exists to have a shift. For example, trusts, corporations and estates have standing in our law, but animals don't. So non-human animals cannot show up to court and have their rights enforced. Um, so, so I'm saying, is there maybe a third way where we can move forward, where you can look at the chart about the welfare and then the chart about um, animal rights um, and how things differ. 2018, so in law, animals are still property. We have anti-cruelty statutes that, are, that still depend on classification and deciding on what is unnecessary harm or suffering. So that, that means that there are some necessary means. And usually, it's for an economic imperative. That's where we have the word, it's necessary. So that's how we justify slaughter, because it's necessary. People need to eat. That's the justification. So there's no legal status under the law for animals to object. So habit and custom continue for the most part. Um, and I think maybe there's a third way to take root, something like sentient property, like, in, like we argue for in animal custody. We live with companion animals, but we still kill and use animals. So we, we pat one animal and we eat another, right? We have this dichotomy in our heads. I don't think there's one clear way forward for animal law lawyers or for society. Now, getting into some of the cruelty laws in BC and the Criminal Code of Canada, um, what we have is we have the PCA Act, the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, and you see that coming up in the news fairly often. And that's the BC SPCA um, investigating and taking action in instances of animal cruelty, and they get their power from the PCA Act and the Criminal Code. It's the only animal welfare legislation um, organization in BC with the authority to enforce the laws relating to animal cruelty and to recommend charges to the Crown for the prosecution for those who inflict suffering. So the PCA is distinct from the criminal code, which is countrywide. So the PCA is a BC piece of legislation, and the criminal code applies throughout Canada. So each province has their version of the PCA. And um, so, for example, it's a, it's, it's a crime in Canada to intentionally harm animals. So anyone who deliberately harms animals can be charged under the criminal code. Um, but we have a problem with enforcement because we have very few officers on the ground who are actually investigating cases and so many more heinous acts of cruelty to be investigated. So it takes time to bring the charges forward for the Crown to investigate, for a trial to happen. And one of the worst parts about this is our loophole. So for example, two months, two months after a man was named in an animal cruelty case in Kamloops, the same guy moved to Alberta and he was charged again and charged under their PCA Act. Well, I mean, so he was banned from owning pets. So he just, how does he get more animals? He just keeps moving along and moving along. So without having the criminal code come in and say, you know what, we need a countrywide ban on this recalcitrant person. He's not, or she's not going to get better. Um, so if he was charged under the code, it would have been countrywide. And again, enforcement is a huge issue. 
We don't also have a lot of Crown resources going towards animal law. I know two of the Crown Council in Canada, and they are super diligent, and a lot of the stuff they do ends up being on their own, on their own time. Okay, pet custody. Um, pet custody. So very few cases, as I say, make it to court in Canada, but pet custody cases make headlines. Um, because I think there's no question Canadians care about their pets and usually value them like family members, but the law sees animals as property, not family. So civil disputes um, pertaining to custody of companion animals. So this can be between roommates, it can be um, you know, same-sex couples uh, who aren't married, different things. Um, so is there any specific legislation dealing with the family pet in divorce? No. Are pets considered children? No under the law. How does the family act treat the family pet property? And then yeah, give a, a bit longer explanation about what family property is. How can you account for the family pet in a private contract or can you in a separation agreement? And you can. You can actually go to a lawyer and have something drafted for how you want to see things settle. It's probably a good idea. Will it be enforced in court? Maybe not. Likely not, depending on the judge you get but it also shows your intention. So when I, tell, I counsel people before you buy your pet, adopt your pet, and I hope people are adopting, not shopping, before you get your pet, think about it very carefully. What's gonna happen when this partnership dissolves? So again, the, the court has no choice but to say it's a matter of ownership, not best interests like we do with human children. So um, this is on, almost uniformly true. We have had a few cases here and there which have said we're going to allow intermittent access. There are a few cases in Saskatchewan where this happened, but then the next case after it said, no, no, we're not applying that. We're not going to do that. But, you know, so here we say in 2016, um, the Canadian Animal Health Institute said that at least 41% of Canadian homes have at least a dog and 37% of households have at least a cat. I think it's probably higher than that, actually, but um, that was a 2016 survey. Um, so we believe that animals are our family members, but they're not going to be treated like that in court. And that's where the property issue comes in. So there was a case in Newfoundland in the spring that drew a lot of interest called Baker and Harmina. And um, the judge for the, the so it's against so the three judges in a court of appeal case, and the main the, the main judgment said, in the eyes of the law, a dog is an item of personal property. So that's what was said. But the dissenting judge, Lois Hogg, said, a dog is not just another asset to be divided. So that was, that was a huge statement to make. Dog ownership, she said, is more nuanced and should take into consideration relationships, care, expenses. Um, in this case, she noted the couple made decisions about the dog together, and the woman signed for the dog at the airport, took care of the dog, and contributed to other expenses and the, the male in the um, marriage, he was away a lot. Um, so what she says though, and this is, this is important, the ownership of a dog is a more complex and nuanced question than the ownership of say, a bicycle. So we're not equating animals with property. Well, she wasn't in the descent. Whoever pays for the dog gets to keep the dog upon a split. That's, that's the general idea. And people say, well, what about sharing? What about, you know, half with me, half, no. That really doesn't work. The Court of Appeal says, at, at least in this very recent Court of Appeal case in Newfoundland, no, we're not going to do that because it's just going to create all kinds of hassles down the road. The, court, the legal system isn't equipped to deal with the problems raised by joint ownership of dogs, and they think it's a waste of judicial resources. So 
that's what they're saying. Um, pet custody, this is my last slide on it. it um, I've been interviewed by the media a lot on pet custody, and um, I think it still, it still does boil down to how the court interprets it as to who owns it. I don't think there's a lot of change there, but there's, there's a little bit of change because you can draw on the dissents for argument, but it's still not the law. The dissent is not the law. So for more information on pet custody, I can send you guys a link to um, my March 2018 CBC interviews. I gave a bunch of interviews coast to coast. You can also Google my name on pet custody, and I think there's some materials there on pet custody as well. Shifting to animal liability in Canada. So this mostly ends up referring to dogs at the provincial municipal level. And like I say, cats are usually at home and they get away with stuff. So the cats might take a little bite here and there, but it's usually just a little play bite. And I mean, most people, you don't, you don't see that many cat cases. You know, we talk about dangerous dogs. You don't hear about the dangerous cat cases. Those, those aren't really prosecuted very often. So again, we go back to the classification uh, of animals. And so animal liability legislation establishes liability on a defendant for damages caused by his dog, and it authorizes municipal or provincial authorities to make orders to control animals that are dangerous for the community, including death sentences. And they call them destruction orders. And you know, it's not really a euphemism that's uh, very um, camouflaging of what they're doing. So, but there, by the way, there's no free bite, generally speaking. That's something I like to put in for people. Um, so what happens is the animal control officer has a lot of say in whether or not an animal is dangerous. They can investigate, they can recommend charges, and they're the ones who basically get a, have a lot of leeway in court as well. Um, and the, the dog of the, you know, it seems to be pit bulls right now that we're vilifying, but before it was shepherds and then it was Dobermans and depending on how old you are, it was probably something else like back, you know, when you were kids, I don't know, it depends. But right now it's pit bulls and we tend to judge by stereotypes. Everybody thinks, you know, pit bulls, they're dangerous dogs. Well, it doesn't bear out in the bite statistics. Breed specific legislation has been proven not to work in Europe and here. It hasn't worked. So it just, by saying that's a pit bull, so therefore he or she's gonna be dangerous, not really. So um, under our BC's uh, community charter, that allows a provincial dog to order that a dog be destroyed if it's believed to be dangerous. But you can also get conditional orders even if the dog is labeled dangerous. So way back in 2005, I did a very early case under the community charter. Um, it's called Community Charter versus Whittle. And this was in North Vancouver. And the judge ended up looking at the character of my client and he applied uh, a third alternative to destroy or kill the dog, even though he found the dog to be dangerous. He said, we're gonna import cri uh, principles from criminal law and the, the Crown didn't like that, but what I did was I brought out this plan for safe release. So I said, yes, this dog is problematic. He has done something that's problematic, but here is what we can do to safely, safely release it, her to the community. And I put together a plan with my behaviorists, and we said we're gonna build really high fences, we're gonna make sure the dog is muzzled, we're gonna take training. This dog can be rehabilitated, doesn't need, she doesn't need to die. And um, it was great because um, the judge uh, saved the life of that dog. And we entered into a peace, the client entered into a peace bond. 
So um, in BC, the municipal animal control officer has a tremendously wide discretionary power to designate a dangerous dog, in including, as I said, applying to the court for the destruction order. Um, we had a great case in Kuo, called Kuo, in 2008, uh, 2006 rather, sorry, that was the appeal. And that was where um, the, the courts in BC can review the determination on whether the animal control officer acted reasonably um, reasonably believed that the dog was going to be dangerous and a conditional order was allowed in that case as well. Um, okay, all right, so this is interesting. So now we're shifting a little bit to another type of municipal law here where um, I'm going to give you two examples. One where um, there was an untrained owner, as I call him, and, and a defendant who should not have been self-represented, but he was. And this was, um, this was RV Namura over in Victoria. And he was, so he was charged under a municipal bylaw in Oak Bay for having his dog off leash and the dog attacked and terrorized a stranger. And so he had his two Rottweilers with him, Chloe and Clay, and he, he, one of the dogs attacked the woman's arm. And the behavior of the defendant was the thing in issue in a lot of ways. It was the man himself who basically said, you know, he couldn't control his dog. It came out. He couldn't, he couldn't stop the bite. And he was also extremely dismissive of the injuries once they did happen. And he didn't offer the victim any assistance. Um, and he also had had a previous warning from animal control um, for having the same dog off leash. So what he had there was if he had been a diligent owner, he might have been able to escape liability under the defense of due diligence. But he was not diligent, so he basically was found guilty and um, he um, got a fine under the bylaw. Here's an exact opposite case. This is the city of Vancouver versus Sim. It's a 2017 case. I happen to be the lawyer in that case. Um, and this, is a, this was where my client's dog, um, a therapy dog, a really great helper in the community, was charged uh, for biting somebody. And this is a very different case, as I say, because my client was extremely diligent. The dog was on a short leash, short leash. The dog was well trained. And we brought in a bunch of neighbors and experts to prove that this dog was well trained. And so um, the, um, she basically was allowed to make out the defense of due diligence because she truly was diligent. I have a copy of that case if anyone wants to see it. Um, so in in Prince George in our province, they're doing away with breed-specific legislation, and I think it's pretty progressive because it's been shown not to work. And so what they're doing is they're saying, um, you know what, it was just getting ridiculous to, to pre-classify somebody, it's pre-judging somebody. It wasn't really that different than, for example, judging people who were, were black. It's the same thing. It's just a stereotype. We're going to make judgments. We're going to do things. And it was being done for dogs. It still is in, in lots of jurisdictions. But so now we're seeing people resile from breed-specific legislation saying, wait a minute, it hasn't worked. It hasn't brought the number of bites down. It hasn't stopped dog attacks. People are beginning to see it really doesn't work. And trying to focus on the behavior of the dogs and behavior of the individual. My platform on this is we need to train people better. We need to train dogs better and then we'll have less dog attacks. So I think we should have an, um, you know, this responsible animal ownership bylaw or animal guardianship bylaw um, where we start to see, like you see what an election issue it became in Montreal too.
Um, so I'm big on the education side of things and educating the person on who's holding the leash. Um, so the city of Richmond codified uh, the perspective that we need to eliminate bad dogs, quote unquote, from becoming in the first place. And one way of doing that is to ban the sale of them in pet shops. Because if people go into pet shops and they can freely access and purchase a pet, they're not really putting a lot of thought into it. They're walking through the mall and they think, I think I'll have that pet in the window. I mean, it's ridiculous. You're, you're, you're taking somebody's life into your own hands in a lot of ways. You're responsible for the care and the love. So that was a really good initiative because it sends a, a strong message to say, you know, puppy mill breeders, you are not welcome in Richmond. So could animals be more than property one day? Um, I say maybe yes if international examples are any indication. So we have Justice the Horse in the US. Now, I, did anybody hear about this case? Hands up for who heard of Justice the Horse? No? So Justice the Horse, he was renamed Justice, cleverly, by the ALDF, the American Legal Defense Fund, who brought the case. Can't remember what his name was before, but he was renamed Justice. And so this eight-year-old horse was actually filed as a plaintiff. Uh, because he was suing his former owner for negligence for $100,000. Because of the abuse, um, justice requires extensive surgery and a ton of vet care. Um, and so, um, unfortunately though, in September 2018, the judge rejected the creative theory that the animal should have legal, legal capacity to sue its former owner and dismissed the case. So the movement to open the courthouse doors to non-human animals was set back a little bit as the court determined that Justice the Horse is not a real party in interest and lacks the legal status or qualifications necessary to establish standing to be a plaintiff in a lawsuit. But then we have Happy the Elephant in the Bronx Zoo. And um, that's Stephen Wise's case uh, for the Non-Human Rights Project. And he's gonna ask a judge to rule on a groundbreaking point is an elephant a legal person, a juristic person? Essentially, if you're not a person, you, you first need to win the right to ask for rights. So the judge in Orleans uh, County Supreme Court will rule, I think it's, yeah, it's later this month on December 14th, whether or not Happy, who's stuck in a Bronx Zoo, should be considered a legal person. And if she is, then she can get free. So um, this is what, I mean, Steve, have. Have you guys heard of the Non-Human Rights Project with Stephen Wise? This is, this, is, um, uh, this is a group in the States and they've been fighting for animal rights and going into courts and saying a chimpanzee should be able to fight. And he, it's the movie Unlocking the Cage. It's a really great movie if you get a chance to see it. Um, and he's saying, you know what, laws that call elephants things can't be supported logically, legally, morally, or scientifically. And this, this animal has passed the mirror test where she can look in a mirror and recognize that that's her. Um, so on December 14th, if the judge rules that Happy the Elephant can be released from the Bronx Zoo to a sanctuary, Happy will be the first non-human granted legal personhood in the States. And lawyer Stephen Wise argues that the judge doesn't explicitly need to say Happy is a legal person. She may just order Happy to be released from the zoo, but such an order amounts to the same thing. Going to India. Um, there was a high court ruling in July 2018 that elevated animals from mere property to juristic persons. So it's a groundbreaking animal law ruling of the Uttarakhand Indian High Court. And the judge ruled that all animals ought to enjoy the same rights as humans because animals, quote, have distinct personas with corresponding rights, duties, and liabilities of a living person. 
So this ruling gives birds and animals the rights, duties, and liabilities of a living person and elevates them from mere property to juristic persons. This is akin to an incapacitated adult, companies, trusts, minors, and wards of the court. And the judgment further went to say, all the citizens throughout the state are hereby declared persons in loco parentis as the human face for the welfare protection of animals, which means that if you see uh, a bird, a dog, stranded by the side of the road in, and they're injured, it is your job in the state of Uttarakhand to give assistance. Just as you wouldn't walk by a person who was in that state. Now, the court has said you shouldn't do that with animals. So this, this is really big, um, but the National Supreme Court still has to ratify the judgment, so we'll see exactly where this goes. In January of this year, I was invited to speak at Indian law schools, and I was going on and on, giving my presentation, and, and then the dean, the, who was a female, which was great, all, all the places I went, they were all female law school deans, and she put up her hand, she said, Victoria, you haven't talked about something that's really important here in India. I said, what's that? She said, custom. She said, we don't need a law to tell us to be kind, she said, because what we do is we apply custom. And she asked somebody to go to her uh, drawer back in her classroom and fetch a picture. She brought out a picture. And in that picture was a picture of a human mother feeding a human infant on her breast on one side, and on the other side feeding a goat a baby goat. And she said, this is what custom can do. And so that made me realize you can go on and on about the laws, but if you don't have custom and societal will, the law is kind of meaningless in a lot of ways. We need to have the will, the impetus to want to do these things. So back to Canada. We have some bills and some movements afoot in Canada that are very promising because I don't want this to be about doom and gloom, it's all about property. No, we've had some really neat stuff happen. In October 28, we have the free willy ban uh, to free whales and dolphins. Um, this has already passed the Senate and the legislation is now in the House of Commons for further debate, debate and voting and it's getting closer and closer to becoming law thanks a lot to Elizabeth May who's pushing it forward. And so this legislation will um, be, um, will ban the keeping of whales and dolphins in captivity and breeding them as well as import and export with minor exceptions. And only two aquariums in, left in Canada, Marine Land and the Vancouver Aquarium still, still have whale jails. So um, in June 2018, another bill um, came forward to ban cosmetic animal testing in Canada. And it's now on its way to the House of Commons, uh, Bill S214, the Cruelty-Free Cosmetics Act. The bill would prohibit cosmetic testing on animals in Canada and amend the Food and Drugs Act to ban the sale of cosmetics developed or manufactured elsewhere through the use of animal testing. There's been huge support for this bill, and it should mean that it will be able to be passed quite handily. And big cosmetic companies, like these big, big ones, are already getting on board pledging to start banning cosmetic animal testing. So that's, that's a really big deal. Nova Scotia ended elective surgery on companion animals um, in the autumn, and I've, I've written an article on that as well over there. And so this was, this was it seems like a minor deal, but from, and some animal law lawyers will say it's just a little thing, but to me it's a big thing because 
they are basically saying cosmetic, medically unnecessary surgeries such as tail docking, removing or altering part of the tail, and ear cropping, and declawing cats to achieve a breed standard look, and devocalization, removing vocal cord tissue, it's no longer legal. That's actually really big because we're saying this animal's body, the way this animal was born, should remain the way this animal lives. So we don't need to crop a tail. Like think about a Doberman, you know, you see them with those short stumpy tails. That's because it's been cropped. That's not how its tail is. You see, actual Doberman tails are long and curly. So, you know, that was because the CKC, the Canadian Kennel Club and the AKC and the different animal kennel clubs say, that's the breed standard and that's what we want. So we have to alter an animal so that you have your human aesthetic? That's ridiculous. So in Nova Scotia, they said, that's ridiculous. We're not doing this anymore. So um, they're putting companion animal welfare ahead of vanity or economic concerns um, for pet guardians. So, so as we're in a legal framework where animals are by and large nothing more than property, this statute stands out for tacitly incorporating animal sentience. Problem is, again, what could end up happening is someone says, okay, I can't do it in Nova Scotia. I'll just head over to Vermont. I'll just go somewhere else where I can get this done. So we need to have more of a North American ban. We need to see these, leg we need copycat legislation. And apparently, shortly after this, we did get some copycat legislation, which was good in other provinces. Okay, this is a topic I don't want to talk about. Ian specifically asked me if I was going to be mentioning it. It is bestiality. Like, I, I was asked to write about this for the Lawyers Daily. There's an article over there that I wrote about. And again, in October 2018, um, the Liberal government brought in Bill C-84 to expand the crime of bestiality to include any contact for a sexual purpose with an animal. And it closes off the loophole created by the Supreme Court decision in DLW, which is a couple years old. Um, so that's good. I mean, you think that animals will be protected in this way, and you just assume that they were already protected, and you would be wrong. That's, that's the sicko part of this. Like, I, I'm sorry to put the judgment of sicko in words like that, but I can think of no other word for it. It truly makes my stomach royal to think about it. Um, so, so this bill will also expand the fighting or baiting of animals. And um, so, for example, cock, cock fighting and things like that. It, it takes into account all of that. And I like this quote by um, Minister Raybald, the justice minister, the federal minister. For many Canadians, animals are an important extension of our families and our communities. Our law needs to reflect these values and protect animals and provide protection to them that they require from such senseless acts of violence. These crimes have no place in our society. I say, here, here, absolutely here, here. It's showing animals do matter. My working conclusion is that inevitably there will always be an interdependent relationship between humans and non-human animals of all sorts and their competing rights and responsibilities in the law. The law needs to bring balance and equity to all humans and non-human animals. It's not an either or. Thank you.